0: Experimental
1: Humanities. Hi, and welcome to EH Out Loud. I'm Ann Comer, alumni fellow here at Bard Center for Experimental Humanities, where we investigate how technology mediates what it means to be human. For this episode, I am pleased to discuss the topic of my senior project on Board Manor, a former retirement community which from the 1960s onward has been incorporated into the Bard College campus and Tivoli Bays. The community was in operation from 1926 to 1959. I graduated from BARD in May of 2019 and the Board Manor research emerged from a collaborative project and would not have been possible without fellow students, community members, and the BARD College faculty. In this episode, you will hear from Eric Kiviat, the Executive Director of Hudsonia, Helene Teeger, BARD College's Archivist, and students, Eli and Stella, who will provide insight on what it's like to live in the manor as a dorm in 2020. Here's what Eli, a sophomore Bard, had to say.
2: What I know about Manor is that it was an insane asylum once, Um, which I think really explains how oddly the whole building is designed where the rooms are with like crazy little hallways. Um, I don't think it's haunted.
1: Here's what Stella, another junior at Bard, had to say. What I know about Manor, I heard that it was a hospital, an insane asylum. I heard that it was an old people's
2: home. I did not hear that it was haunted.
1: I was surprised to learn that it was in fact a retirement community started by the Association for Improving the Conditions of the Poor. Later, the Community Service Society of New York in 1926. Many residents who moved to the manor in the early 20th century chose to spend the remainder of their lives in the property. What they left behind and the stories found in the CSS archives informed us that the people who lived in the manor property were from a wide array of states and Europe. For this podcast, I interviewed Helene Teeger, who before coming to Bard as an archivist, grew up near Bard and was later a student. Here are her memories on the campus at that time.
0: I also grew up in the area. I grew up in Tivoli. So I've had a long, long history with the area and some of the stories that have permeated um, the land around us. So um, when I was a child, I used to I used to play and explore in this in the Ward Manor in the whole Ward Manor property, which we called the abandoned village. Um, my friend's father uh, was a, a professor of economics at Bard, and he was also a passionate local and regional historian, and he began the Hudson Valley Archives, um, which the college has subsequently inherited. Um, but my friend, Kristen and I just explored the houses that were still, many of, some of them were still standing at the time. And so, and especially the huge barn, which is now in total ruins, but we would, we would go and explore. There was still hay in the stalls. You could climb upstairs, there was a downstairs. It was really just exciting to spend time there as a kid. Um, we did know there was a cemetery, but we didn't know where it was. It's not an obvious. It's not in an obvious location, and it was pretty overgrown. So we never actually sought it out when we were young. We we used to babysit. We were all faculty brats, and we and we I used to babysit for another faculty member's child in the house that became what's now called Ham House, which is in Tivoli. But during the time, um, the earlier period of Ward Manor that you discussed, it was called the Homestead. And of course, I didn't know that then, but I, I spent an afternoon with my charge one day and two elderly women walked into the driveway and knocked on the door and told us that they had stayed in the house and gone to camp there as a child. And that sort of resonated a little bit with what my friend Kristen's father had said, but I didn't really know anything about that until years later when we were allowed to digitize all of the photographs of the Donna Matthews collection years later after I became the, the archivist for the college and we were digitizing the all of the photographs that she had and I came across a picture of homestead and scanned it and it was shocking because it originally had this beautiful wraparound porch um, and these tall gracious trees and as I was looking at the photograph I remembered the two women walking up the driveway and knocking on the door and so it was a really it was like a little bit of a jarring in time because so many years had been
1: gone by between those two events. Eric Kiviat spent a lot of time at Bard as a student and now works at Hudsonia. Here are some of his memories of campus during that time.
3: Uh, I think back in the 1970s when I was doing a lot of biological fieldwork in Tivoli North Bay, I learned that the Ward Manor property had been uh, a retirement home and that the um, structures that were still there at the time, the big barn, uh, some other buildings, a swimming pool, some uh, bungalows, and the cemetery that we're going to talk about were all part of the retirement facility and that there had also been a boys camp on Kruger Island nearby until about 1955. So I, I don't think I knew very much. I didn't do any research, historical research. I don't think I knew very much about Ward Manor and how it had been founded and what it was for, just that it had existed there. In the late 60s, and I don't know how long this went on, there were some of the Ward Manor bungalows between what I call the Ward Manor Road that goes north-south through the middle of the property. Between there and and the marsh in Tivoli North Bay, there were several Bungalows that were still in existence, and uh, some students and some other people, probably friends of students, were living in those bungalows, uh, squatting in them. Essentially, they didn't have permission from Central Hudson, and uh, and they were all uh, arrested or thrown off the property by the county sheriff's office uh, at some point, and probably in about. 68. Uh, So that, you know, I I saw some of that. It wasn't a a rumor, but it's just an interesting piece of information. And I think all those bungalows have been removed. There was one very remote one that I don't know if anyone got in there to remove, but if if it wasn't taken away, it's probably uh, rotted away by now.
0: You know, we all have had ghost stories circulating for a long time, you know, um, and the stories of the morgue and the, and the insane asylum um, never really went away. You know, what can you, you can't stop a rumor, right? But when you're there, you can, you can explore it. So um, much later, Emily and Randy Clum, Emily Major and Randy Clum and I, went in search of the morgue and worked our way down to the basement of manor. And it was, it's a crazy staircase to get all the way down. There would be no way you could take a body down these very narrow, like stairs. It would, it's just not practical. And then we we made our way in there and it was covered with graffiti. So somebody found their way in, but it appeared to be a squash court, not a morgue.
2: Well, Okay, so I heard of one, which is, I, which I think is really interesting, because it's was experienced by both Nico and Lucas. Okay. And so, like, they had the room different years, and they both had their bed in the same exact place. Whoa. Um, but what they both said they had was like a like. It was like very similar to sleep paralysis, and they had never, neither of them had experienced sleep paralysis before, and but basically they would wake up and they would sit up and then just like see a little girl that was like very like shadowed and like it would always be at night so like they couldn't really make out that much but it would be like a little girl and then she'd laugh and get really close to them and then run away and the door would open like as and then like the like but then like that would be it and they both said they experienced that once
3: i don't know or i don't remember any kind of student body rumors about about Ward Manor, although I'm sure there were some. I do remember that in the 70s, probably the early to mid 70s, uh, there was a student, although I think he was a, a former student at the time, an ex-student named Charlie, who got permission from Central Hudson to use The big uh, pole barn, which is an an unusual and was a magnificent structure, it's falling apart now. And I think it's either been or about to be raised by the DEC because it's just a hazard now. They weren't able to restore it. But Charlie got uh, permission to use the barn to build a a boat. He was building a sort of quasi-experimental concrete boat. And he he never finished it to my knowledge. He worked on it for for years, uh, and I think he actually lived in the barn during a lot of that time. And um, and I knew about I, I met him because he was the boyfriend of a Bard student. Uh, you know, Bard was small then. I want to say there probably were. Only six hundred or so undergraduates, six or seven hundred, if that. And so, you know, many of us knew knew each other, even though I, you know, I was no longer a student. That was in between being a student at Bard. Um, So that wasn't a a rumor. That was something that was actually happening. Uh, But the but I'll tell you a couple of funny things that are that were student rumors about uh, the Bard property and Rokeby down River Road uh, near Berrytown. One is that you may know back in the woods at Bard, it's woods now, there is an old root cellar. Do you know about that? It's a little excavation in the ground with some old uh, stonework. So there was a root cellar in what's now the woods that barred that that apparently belonged to one of the estate owners at the time and there was a practice of you know harvesting i don't know what potatoes and other root vegetables and storing them underground in in a special structure so they would stay cool and keep into the winter for, for food and it was a, a, a a legend uh, about this or folklore at Bard about this root cellar that it was inhabited by a a being that was called Catman who was half human and half cat. And you could tell that Catman lived in the root cellar because there were fish bones scattered around outside the root cellar. Uh, I'm not sure how that story got started. And then another story that was in circulation when I was a student at Bard in the, in the mid-60s was um, that the Rokeby Gatehouse on River Road, which was being rented to Bard students for, for many years, was haunted. And that if, you know, if you lived in the gatehouse, you would see ghosts there
2: Um, It was a pretty small room. It was, like, a weird little L-shape, and then the roof, since we were on the third floor, the roof, like, was very seriously slanted, which made the room seem a lot smaller, and (laughs) I, uh, right when I moved in, the person who lived next to me had lived in my room his sophomore year, and told my roommate and I that sometimes you hear banging on the slanted roof and that he thought it was a ghost,
1: but
2: Mm. also never experienced that, so.
1: So, I kind of already said it, but my room was really long. It was cut in half. Like, the wall, you could tell there was, like, a fake wall that had divided it from Mm -hmm. the room that was next to me, which made it so you could hear, like, everything the other person was doing my bed was like right next to the wall so I heard everything from the other room um and that room had a, the room next to me had a bathroom and so we assumed that it was it used to be one room and that there was like a bathroom connected to it um and it did not have a, a balcony but it had a window that opened up there were like to this giant balcony that was supposed to be closed off and it was also connect it was like a fire escape but with like a second f- floor like opening Although our guests have had very different experiences of Ward Manor, you can tell that the residents and the surrounding property have made a big impression on all of them. When I conducted the research on Ward Manor, I had heard some of the rumors surrounding the manor property, but through fieldwork, archival research, and oral histories, we have been able to reconnect with the descendants of those interred in the cemetery. This project is still in progress, and it's important for us to ensure that the stories of Lord Manor and the people who called it home are recounted. In this next clip, Eric and Helene discuss some of the changes to the cemetery.
3: When I found that cemetery quite by accident, you know, almost 50 years ago, uh, I saw probably no more than 20 or 30 graves. And I saw, I I recognized them as graves because each one had a very small uh, headstone that was, you know, just a few inches above the ground. And also at that time, when I first found it, uh, each of those stones had a, a tree planted next to it. And those trees were, they were obviously planted as part of the cemetery. They were what we call northern white cedar or arborvitae. Arborvitae is a an American pronunciation of the Latin meaning tree of life. So I think it was symbolic, used symbolically in the cemetery um, as, a, as a memoriam to the uh, graves, to the people who were buried there. And those trees were not very big. I'm uh vaguely remembering they were probably only 10 or 15 feet high and it you know it's a beautiful um sort of peaceful looking evergreen tree so the the odd thing the tragic thing that happened was sometime after i first saw the cemetery and the arborvitae trees uh they were cut by Uh, someone by a duck hunter who used them for camouflage on a duck blind in North Bay. And um, it was a bit of a shock to me because it was, you know, it was was obviously a cemetery. You didn't have to look very hard to tell that. And I was uh, surprised that anyone uh, would would go in and cut the trees in a cemetery. It seemed quite um, sacrilegious to me.
0: The story is, Dick Griffiths, who was the former head of building and grounds, wanted to make sure that the cemetery was cared for. So the story goes that on his deathbed, Dick asked, uh, Randy Klum, who was going to succeed him in building and grounds, and Jim Broadfake, who was an administrator of the college, and he asked them to promise that they would see that the cemetery was cared for. So, I know, I know, it's like, oh my, I'm all for cleft right. So, um, meanwhile, so by 2016, Randy, they had done what they could, they would go back periodically and brush hog. So Randy and Emily and I met, and Randy again agreed to clear the area, and Emily and I went to Colombia where the archives of the uh, Community Service Society are housed. And subsequent to that, you and I also did that, but Emily and I went the first time and photographed our first stash of papers. Um, there's a, it's a very extensive archive in Colombia. Uh, and one of th- that day the thing that really stayed with me was the we found a document from the late 1950s that was a clinical description of every every member that lived in the house because the community service society was seeking to sell the property and they were trying to find homes for all of the people that lived there at that time so this was around 58 or 50, 57 or 58, and there there are so many pages. You know, there's almost 100 people were living there, I believe, and the stories are so poignant. This woman has a heart attack or diabetes, and she's very friendly, and her special friend is Mr. So-and-so, and um, moving her is almost inconceivable. As the As the descriptions go through, they start out and they're quite short, and then by the end, You'll have a description that's a whole page because the people got very involved in writing these and trying to imagine finding new homes for these people was um, very emotional for everybody involved. I believe so. It's almost a a a blessing. I think it's it's. I'm always happy when I find one of the names on that list in the cemetery because I know that they died before they had to move them and they would suffer a final um, move which would be very difficult at that stage of their lives.
1: I asked Helene why working on Ward Manor matters today. Well
0: you know you're asking that question now as we are quarantined in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis um, and um, you know, this is a, a worldwide pandemic. So we are very aware of uh, our own, you know, mortality and our own, you know, vulnerability in the world. Um, and whenever I s- start to feel a little bit antsy or, or you know, distressed, I mean, I just it's helpful to work in the archives because you, you look at the names and the dates of the people who are in the cemetery. And they, many of them were born in the mid 19th century or the late 19th century, tried, made their way to the United States only to get here and live through World War I and the Great Depression, sometimes World War II you know, these enormous, you know, crushing events that just terrified the whole world, right? You know, and so it just puts things into perspective a little bit about what we are experiencing right now. And so if 50 years from now, if somebody is, knows, happens, I don't know how they would know, but if they knew that I was in any way involved with this project, um you know it's it, it's important to know that people care that people care and everybody that i've been involved with this project has cared so deeply and and many of the people who were buried in that cemetery spent their lives in service or you know they 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 might be they might have been lonely or they they you know they they weren't famous people but We care about them and we want to see that they are remembered in some way.
1: The archive can be a comfort in times of crisis. We are able to learn from history that we are not alone. I would like to restate what Helene just expressed. Some of the residents at Ward Manor lived through the First World War, the Great Depression and the Second World War. Their legacy can inspire us in these dark times. My hope for this episode is that it inspires you to work with your community to support those around you. Thank you. EH Out Loud is produced at Bard College's Center for Experimental Humanities by me, Ann Comer, Krista Caballero, Karina Cape, Berg Cohen, and Ariel West. Sound editing and music by Ariel West and Bird Cohen. Special thanks to Eric Kiviat, Helene Teeger, Eli, Stella, and the Experimental Humanities Media Core. Visit us at bar.edu to learn more about our Digital History Lab project as well as other projects at the Center.